Point Church Podcast. Our mission is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information, stalk us on Facebook at The Point Online or visit our website at thepointchurch.net. Now here's our message from God's Word. You know, when I was seven years old, I had a recurring nightmare about a vacuum cleaner, mind you, that that roamed through the house, hooked into your mouth, and sucked out your brains. For three to four nights, I'd wake up absolutely terrified. One night, the nightmare was especially frightening. And when I sat up in bed trying to wake up, the evil vacuum was standing upright at the foot of my bed. I think my mom had parked it there to remind me to clean my room. Have you ever been so freaked out that when you screamed, nothing came out? For some time afterward, every time I saw a vacuum, I had this twinge of fear, like it was still going to suck out my brains. It stuck with me for quite some time. This weird, like, vacuum fear thing. I'm healed now. (laughs) Unless you need your, you know, living room vacuum, then... (laughs) then it's a pretty good excuse. (laughs) Hey, some of you, you, you've lived in a nightmare. Maybe you were abused, molested, hurt. Sometimes a certain sight or a smell or a sound reminds you, and all those feelings deep inside of you come surging to the surface. And it's like you're right back in that abuse again. Listen, We are often driven by feelings deep, deep inside of us. Maybe we were rejected by a parent, so we've bottled up anger inside of us. Maybe we we fell in love with somebody who, for some reason, we can never be with, so we repress that love. But it's still there at one level or another. Maybe we grew up in poverty. We had nothing. I mean, that's not how it is with now. We've got plenty now, but deep down, there's this insecurity that we're going to lose everything. Psychologists tell us that human beings repress all kinds of emotions. And when we bottle them up, we kind of know they're there, but not enough to prevent their impact on us. Unfortunately, those underlying emotions often influence a great deal of our behavior. In today's parable, we find Jesus. He's in church, the temple. But but the Jewish leaders of the church, they're angry with Jesus. And as we study Jesus' response, we discover their anger goes deep beneath the surface. Let's look at Luke chapter 20. Jesus was in the temple teaching the people, telling them the good news, and the leading priests, the teachers of the law, and the older Jewish leaders, they come up to talk to him. They said, Tell us what authority you have to do these things. Who gave you this authority? So what does Jesus say? Well, he responds with a story, and he casts these Jewish leaders as characters in his story. You know, in the story, Jesus shows us that bottled up inside these religious leaders was a hidden motivation that was driving their behavior. And because Jesus' stories, you know, are still relevant today, he also reveals what drives us too. Yes, each of us has something inside of us driving us and we must understand it in order to grow close to God. In fact, in Jesus's parable, he unveils three insights among the three relationships in his story that show us how to grow closer to God. The first of which is right at the start. Verse nine, Jesus told the parable and he said, a man planted a vineyard and he leased it to some farmers. And then he went away for a long time. So we got an owner. That's God. We got a vineyard. Isaiah 5, 7 says the vineyard belonging to the Lord all-powerful is the nation of Israel. So if the vineyard is Israel and 
That means then these religious guys, they're the farmers who are supposed to care for the vineyard, to care for Israel. I mean, this is a pre-capitalistic culture, but we know the relationship. I mean, how many of you work in an organization owned by somebody else? Most of us do. This owner bought a vineyard, leased it out to some farmers, and the owner takes the risk. So if the farmers work hard and the weather cooperates, the owner profits. If not, he goes bankrupt. The farmers don't get the profits, but they don't take the risk either, but they do get a regular paycheck. You know, my wife, Lisa, she hired one of her boys to help her paint a rental house. She was the owner. He was the hired hand. She said, paint that side of the house. I'll be back to check on you. When she came back, he painted a different side of the house because, you know, it was shadier back there. He wanted to do the work as if he was the owner, but he wasn't. And the owner, not happy. (laughs) The farmers, you know, they can't tend the vineyard any old way they want. They got to do it the way that the owner wants it done and for his profit. Now, pay attention to what the farmers do because Jesus is saying, this is what you and I do. What do the farmers do? Look at verse 10. When it was time for the grapes to be picked, the owner sent a servant, a messenger of sorts, to to the farmers to get some of the grapes. But they beat the servant, and they sent him away empty-handed. The farmers, they're acting like owners. They, They reject the owner's servant, the owner's messenger. So Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, you're acting like you own this all, but you don't. And you don't do what the owner wants. You want control. This is true of us too. We live in a culture that says, live how you want, think what you want, do what you want, gather power, grab privileges, get possessions. Everything is yours for the taking. But this is the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Our culture says, act like an owner. God says, I'm the owner. You're just leasing for me. This is the first relationship that packs an insight for us in how to grow closer to God. It's the farmer-owner relationship, and it demonstrates my desire to control my own life. For example, some of you, you're very good looking. Maybe, you know, you were born with great hair or a fantastic jawline, or, you know, maybe you just load up on the Botox. I don't know. But, but you, you know you look good. Question, do you look down on people who aren't as good looking as you? That attitude is a farmer acting like an owner. Another example, we got a lot of entrepreneurs here at the point. A lot are successful, some not so much. But if you're successful, it's really easy to distance yourself from those who failed. Why? Because there's a fierce impulse in the human heart to want to believe if you're successful, it's because of your superiority. Nothing to do with breaks, nothing to do with the right place at the right time. It's like I did it. And that's a farmer acting like an owner. Another example, this is easiest to see in kids. Take a look at this little girl in the video. You want me to help, Rose? No. Thank you. No, thank you. What do you want me to do? Worry about yourself. (laughs) Worry about yourself. (laughs) I'll do this one, so I'm going to do that. You drive! (laughs) Worry about yourself. Go drive! You know, almost as soon as a kid can talk, they announce, I don't need help. I can do it myself. Uh, A few years ago, I asked two of my boys to hoist an extension ladder up on the roof of Lisa's Suburban. I said, put it up there, tie it down. And they said, oh, we got this, Dad. I'm like, okay. Every ounce of my being said, Ray, follow them. I didn't. Two minutes later, the door opens. They walk in quietly. Uh, Dad, um, we got a problem. I look in the garage. They did not put the extension ladder on the roof. 
because, you know, that meant extra work to tie it down. Instead, they put it inside the Suburban. They slid the ladder across the top of the seats, and they slammed the back door like the brilliant boys they are, except the ladder was longer than the inside of the SUV. So when they slammed the back door, the top end of the ladder went right through the front windshield. Now, we could chalk that up to just kids, but God says there's often something much deeper going on. It's an illusion of independence, a mirage of self-sufficiency. We want to be on our own, but it's God that owns it all. Acts chapter 17, verse 25, it says, God is the one who gives life, who gives breath, and everything else to people. You see, on one hand, we know we're just leasing, but on the other hand, we act like we own it all. Maybe you're just here just checking God out, and you haven't decided whether you believe or not, and you think, I'm not leasing my life, I own it. God, if he exists, he's got nothing to do with that. Well, you know, lots of people think of that. But let's think this through for just a second. Because it all hinges really on whether God exists. Is there a God? And to keep this line of thinking concise today, let's just go to the smart people on this. They've thought it through. Us, you know, we're just thinking about food, right? Take the philosopher Nietzsche. He said there is no God. And when you die, you just rot. Nietzsche says it makes no difference whether you're Forrest Gump or Hannibal Lecter. It matters not whether you're nice to people or you like them medium rare, right? Nietzsche says there's no right or wrong. You can just do what you want. He coined the word Superman, Ubermensch, if you read his books like Hitler did. You know Hitler's Aryan race, his desire to create a master race. It was inspired by Nietzsche's Superman philosophy. Superman means you paint the side of the house that you want to paint. You pick grapes how you want to pick them. You do what you want. But there's a catch. And Nietzsche admits it. He says, while we can do whatever we want, whatever we want is basically meaningless. I mean, kudos to him for admitting that. Truth is, we're always caught between two choices that we don't want. If we want meaning, well, we need God. If we want to be God, meaning's got to go out the window. And the trouble with tossing meaning out the window is that values go out with it too. Rape, abuse, genocide, terrorism. Can you just do whatever you want? No, some things are always wrong. Which means intellectually, we know we can't make a valid argument to dismiss God. So what we do is we repress it, we bottle it, we push it to the back of our minds and not think about it. But if we want to grow closer, we can't repress it, we can't bottle it, we've got to embrace it. Or life gets worse, which is exactly what happens in Jesus' story. Look at verse 10 of the parable. When it was time for the grapes to be picked, he, the owner, sent a servant to the farmers to get some of the grapes. But they beat the servant, and they sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent another servant, and they beat the servant also, and showed no respect for him. And they sent him away empty-handed. So this man sent a third servant And the farmers wounded him and threw him out. I want you to notice, each time the owner sends a servant, a messenger, they get beat up. I mean, what's Jesus saying to these religious leaders? He's reminding them that God has sent them prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger, year after year, to tell them they're not caring for the vineyard of Israel right. They're just making up their own rules. They're just doing it for their own power. I mean, read the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. The messengers of God, they literally get beat up and killed. What Jesus reveals in his fantastic parable is the depth of their repression, right? What would cause someone to beat up God's messengers? Do they not like how they dress? I mean, do they not like how they talk? 
No, they don't like who they represent. They represent the one in control, the owner. They represent God. And what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders is that they are acting like they are God because they hate the idea of an owner. They hate the idea of God. He's not saying that they just dislike or are indifferent to God, like they don't prefer him or care about him. But Jesus is really saying they're acting like God is the enemy. But watching this story, does God hate him back? I mean, what do we learn about God's response to those who hate on him? Look again at verse 10. When it was time for the grapes to be picked, he sent a servant. Then he sent another servant. Then he sent a third servant. This is the second relational insight for us. The farmer-messenger relationship, the second relationship, it unveils the persistence of God's love for you and me. Now, what does this mean? It means God never gives us just one chance. He sends repeated messages to us, repeated people to us over and over and over to tell us what? To remind us, he may be out of sight. You may not be able to see him, but he exists and he wants to connect with us. Listen, for some of you, God sent a family member to help you get his message. And since your family members aren't perfect, you focus on what's wrong with them so that, you know, you could trash their message. You're beating up God's messenger. For others, the messenger was a church. Maybe it's this church. Some of you, the messenger was a friend. Sometimes God's message arrives through a tragedy. God sends lots of messengers to us over and over and over. I was in El Salvador going door to door talking to people about Jesus. You know, many of you have done this. First day there, I I knock on a door and a guy in his 30s opens it. I, I talk to him and he says in Spanish, what makes you think God cares about me? I said, sir, five months ago, an American citizen bought an international plane ticket to El Salvador. Yesterday, that man arrived, and he could have gone to any town in El Salvador, but he came to your town. He could have gone to any street in your town, but he went to your street. He could have gone to any house, but he knocked on your front door. Sir, I don't know you. We've never met before, but I've traveled 3,000 miles from the United States of America to deliver a message from God himself. Here it is. He cares about you. He loves you. Now, thankfully, he didn't beat up the messenger, but instead he got down on his knees and he received Christ. Friends, the message of Jesus's parable is that God never stops sending his messengers. But here's a question. Are you listening or are you beating them up? And now here's the heart of Jesus's story. It's in the story's third relationship. The farmer-son relationship reveals that you and I must make a choice. I want you to notice that the violence escalates in the parable. The first servant, they beat him and they send him away empty-handed. Second servant, they beat this guy also and they show no respect for him and they send him away empty-handed. Third servant, the farmers, they wound him and they throw him out. Their hostility rises each time the owner contacts them. And finally, the owner of the vineyard says, hey, what am I going to do now? I'll send my son whom I love and maybe they'll respect him. But, you know, when the farmers saw that son, they said to each other, this son is going to inherit the vineyard. If we kill him, maybe it'll be ours. So the farmers, they throw the son out of the vineyard and they kill him. I I mean, wow, was this parable prophetic? I, I mean, this new character, the son of the owner in this parable, who is this? It's Jesus, God's son. He's the ultimate messenger. The leaders are standing toe to toe with God's only son. He gives them the message and they must make a choice. Accept it, reject it. What will they do? 
Look with me at verse 19. The teachers of the law and the leading priests, they want to arrest Jesus at once because they knew the story was about them. Listen, Jesus' story was not just a message for them. It's also for us because beneath all our complaints about all unhappy we are with our lives, beneath all our self-pity, underneath all our anger is the repressed idea that we think we know what's best for us, but somebody won't let us do what we want. We want to be in charge, but we're not, and we hate that. In fact, here's the truth. We hate God, just like those religious leaders hated God. We want control, and if we cannot ditch the idea of God, we're going to beat up anyone who reminds us of it. That's just the truth of it. Listen, underneath your depression, Underneath your anger, underneath your irritation is a hatred, a hatred that someone else is really in charge. God knows that. That's why he keeps sending messenger after messenger to help you see it. And that's the point of that second relationship. God just never gives us one chance. But the point of the third relationship is whether or not we'll ever change our mind. You see, we're all going to come to the day where we'll either accept the message or reject it, accept Jesus or reject him. You say, come on, I know I disobey God a lot, but Ray, you can't be serious that I hate God, that I'm angry at him. Listen, Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and in Romans 8, 7, he said, the sinful mind is at war with God. And I would go as far to say, is that this is how you can know that you're at peace with God. This is how you can know that you're a Christian. In fact, with respect to this story, there's two ways you can know that you're a Christian. Two ways. First, I'm open to the message. You see, beneath most intellectual arguments against God, there's really a hatred of God. Have you ever had someone tell you why they don't believe in God? You know, over the years, I've learned that there are three kinds of people who ask such questions. And I can quickly find out which group they're in by saying to them, well, hey, that's a good question. You know, I can answer it. If I answer it to your satisfaction, would you give your life to Christ right now? Only a small percentage, like one out of 20, like listen to my answer and give their heart to Christ. The second group, which is like more than half, they listen to my answer, but then they say something right off the page of like Brave New World. You know, the author, that brilliant Aldous Huxley was uber honest. He said, I don't want God to exist because I want to sleep with whomever I want to sleep with. Here's an intelligent philosopher who says, I don't want God to exist because I want to jump into bed with some babe. What does this mean? It means inside the smartest minds among us, there's this anger that blocks our objectivity. We don't want God to exist, so we close our minds to his message. The third group, like five out of 20, they brush the question off like, nah, I ain't interested in any answers. My mind's made up. I mean, think, how honest is it to say my problem with God is this question or that question? So God sends a messenger, you, me, the scripture, somebody, to answer their question. They say, well, I still don't want to believe. At that point, they've kind of been exposed. They don't care what the answer is. They don't want God to exist. And both those second and third groups, about 19 out of 20 people, they don't really have a head issue with God. It's a heart issue. If you want to know if you're a Christian, you've got to be open to the message of Christ. No openness, no faith. Simple. Here's the second way to know that you're a Christian. It's in Matthew 6, 24. No one, Jesus said, can serve two masters. The person will hate one master and love the other, or they'll follow one master and refuse to follow the other. Here's the second way to know that you're a believer. You realize you hate God. Yeah, I realize I hate him. See, Christians are the only people who know they have hated God. Yes, Christians know they're no longer at war with God and they have peace through the cross, but they know there's still a lot of hate left over. 
If you're a Christian, think about it like this. You come to church on Sunday, you're upset, you're bitter with somebody, and somehow, you know, through a song or a message, you realize how much Jesus forgave you. And you immediately forgive that person who hurt you. That's fantastic. But what happens like two days later? The bitterness is back, baby. (laughs) Why? Well, it's kind of like this. Last fall, I left an empty five-gallon paint bucket on my deck, and the rains filled it up. So this winter, the rainwater has iced over, then melted, iced over, then melted. I mean, this is Fort Wayne. You don't like the weather. Wait five minutes, right? A week ago, my bucket was a block of ice. Yesterday, it's all rainwater again. Your heart is similar. It keeps getting iced over. And then it encounters the warmth of God's love, and it melts again. Ice, melt, ice, melt. Where does the ice come from? Why do we get so cold towards people, towards God? Christians are the only ones who really know. If you know you hate God, it means you're a Christian or you're very close to becoming one. If you think this idea of hating God is ridiculous, well, you're kind of in denial, still repressing stuff, still bottling it up. I'm not making this up. Jesus says it, John 15, 25. They hated me for no reason. What did God do about this? He sent messenger after messenger. Then he sends his son. And when the son shows up, he's killed out of hatred. But here, catch this. The beauty of God's plan is that the very killing that comes from the hatred is the way that God ends the war. This is Ephesians 2.16. It was Christ's purpose to end the hatred, to bring us back to God. Christ did all this with his death on the cross. Listen, when you look at the cross, what's up there being destroyed? It's Jesus, not you. And that's the point. Look at how far God went to be friends with us, even though we won't admit it, right? And we hate him and we repress it. We bottle it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. God treated Jesus as the enemy that we are in order to end the war. But if you don't admit you're an enemy, then you're going to stay one. There's no in-between. Either you'll become a friend through what Christ did on the cross, or you'll reject that and you remain an enemy. And you need to know, friend, enemies don't go to heaven. They wouldn't want to go. Bottom line, one of two things are going to happen. Either you're going to say at some point in your life, God, your will be done. Or when you die, Jesus is going to look at you and say, your will be done. You wanted to call your shots? You wanted nothing to do with me? So today, I give you what you always wanted. Go. Go to the one place I'm not. That's what you wanted. So go to hell forever. Your will be done. Am I trying to scare you? Well, sure. There's no other way to deal with someone in denial. I want to scare the hell out of you. If I don't do it today, I'll try it next week. But what I pray is that you see that Jesus is willing to die for you. He was willing to be treated like an enemy for you. So think, how dangerous can it be to give control of your life to a God like that? Jesus was tortured and killed on a cross so that instead of enemies, you and I could be friends with him. His parable predicted it. And today you hear the good news from yet another messenger. And God sends them to you all the time, message after message after message. Why? Because he loves you and he wants the best for you. But you have a choice. Today's story, it can be the story that changes all stories. Or today's story, you can think, well, that's a good story. Must be for someone else. 
Hey, let's take a moment and pray together. Would you join me? Father, thank you for ending the war between us. Thank you for bringing peace through your son, Jesus Christ. And you know, if you're here listening to this message, I can't not stop and just give you the opportunity to say, you know what, I want to accept this message from Jesus. I'm tired of being at war with God. I want to end the war today. And if that's you, would you just take just a moment to say these words? You don't have to get them just right, but you, you can say something like this. You can say, Jesus, forgive me. I hear your message today. I no longer repress it. I no longer bottle it up. I hear you. I hear you say that I'm at war with God and I want the war ended. Today, I accept what you did on the cross to end the war. I accept what you did for me and I invite you into my life. Change me, Jesus. Make me a new person. I want to end the war with God. And you know, if you prayed that prayer, I just want to take a moment to pray for you right now. Father, thank you for every person that is right now just is sharing this news with you that they want to end the war. And I pray that you've heard their prayer. Your word says that you have and that you've opened the door to them and you've come into their life and you've set up residence in them. And God, I thank you that you do that for each one of us when we talk to you, you end the war. And God, I pray for each person that that they would discover someone in their life that could help them grow in their faith. God, that you would help them feel like, man, they're a part of your family and that you will always be there for them. Thank you, God, for what you do for us. Thank you for this message and thank you for every Christian listening in. Help us to realize, God, that, that you've ended that war, that we don't need to fight you on things. We don't need to repress things. But God, we have a love for you. That, that continues and continues and continues. Remind us of that when our hearts ice over. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this teaching from The Point Church. For more information or to learn how to support this ministry, head to facebook.com slash thepointonline or check out our website at thepointchurch.net.